to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guy for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about the need to combat anti-intellectualism. Also going to be discussing an exciting event happening this weekend organized in response to uh, uh, Joe Biden's upcoming African Leaders Summit. And it's Friday, which means we're having our weekly segment, the Red Spin Report, where we discuss sports, politics and struggle. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. Well, the news of Brittany Griner's release in exchange for Russian Victor Boot or Butt or I'm not sure how to pronounce it, but you know who I'm talking about, was met with some very interesting and troubling conversation, at least in the social media world yesterday. For some reason, people took great objection to the trade, bemoaning the fact that Griner, a star of the WNBA, was exchanged for a, quote, convicted arms dealer in Victor Boot, and such a trade was a bad one. I had several people comment that because Boot is such a bad guy, because he is a, quote, convicted arms dealer, end quote, they had nothing to celebrate since he was released, too. Oh, Celebrating Brittany Griner's release is somehow canceled out because Victor Boot is released and is going back to Russia. How does that calculus work? I think I'm surprised at how interested people who have never engaged with me online regarding anything political suddenly had a concern about a person they literally never heard of until they read about him in U.S. media. And when they did, what they learned about Boot was that he is a, quote, convicted arms dealer, end quote, or a, quote, notorious convicted arms dealer, end quote. And apparently that was all people had to know about him to sour on the deal that resulted in the release of Brittany Griner. But why are people sour on the deal because of boot? This is the thing I don't think I understand. Surely people in this country are not all of a sudden concerned about arms dealing, Not with this government paying Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, Northrop Grumman, and other defense contractors to produce what? Weapons. That's what they produce. Arms. And lots of them. Aside from the fact that the U.S. is at this very moment the primary production center for weaponry being sent to Ukraine, the government of which has banned opposition parties, media outlets, unions, and has waged a campaign of terrorism against an ethnic minority within the country since 2014, including banning their language and are now trying to ban a religion, the United States government is notorious for covert deals to arm opposition groups to crush opposition to U.S. imperialist influence in countries like Nicaragua, South Africa, Colombia, Iran, Angola, Zimbabwe. There are really too many to name. And Victor Boot is certainly no hero, having sold arms to all kinds of unsavory actors involved in conflicts all over the world, sometimes arming both sides of some conflicts. But I think it's worth noting that the reason he is described in U.S. media as a, quote, convicted arms dealer, end quote, is that he wasn't convicted for flying planes of weapons into Iraq in support of the U.S. invasion and occupation of that country or for delivering reconstruction 
construction supplies into Afghanistan for the U.S. or for delivering humanitarian aid, whatever that really was, to several countries for the United Nations, they all paid Boot to do these things. Nope. Victor Boot was convicted in a sting operation in which he was led to believe he was selling arms to leftist Colombian guerrillas, FARC. What people who are suddenly up in arms about arms dealing don't know is that the same people who paid Boot to do their bidding, the U.S. government primarily, were mad that he had the nerve to sell arms to groups who were fighting against the U.S. in their countries. And these groups included Hezbollah in Palestine, UNITA in Angola, and other countries, particularly in Africa, where the exploitation of Western neocolonialism and U.S. imperialism created the very instability that caused the wars that Boot made his money providing arms for. The only thing that really needs to be talked about in regard to the release of Brittany Griner is that she is back in the U.S. and let's celebrate that for her and her family. All of the rest of this Monday morning geopolitical quarterbacking from people who have never been concerned about weapons proliferation around the world before is very suspect, considering I doubt any of this conversation would be had if the person being released were, say, the NFL's Tom Brady or even the NBA's Stephen Curry in exchange for the same dude, Victor Boot. But you know what? If people really want to have a conversation about arms dealing and its resulting human toll around the world, okay then, let's talk about the United States and its 800-plus military bases all around the world and how this government, through its network of defense contractors, arms fascists and dictators around the globe, and how ending U.S. militarism and imperialism will destroy the market for individual arms dealers to even exist in the world. I'd love to see the folks who are suddenly enraged about global weapons proliferation to become active in the movement against U.S. imperialism and to oppose U.S.-NATO aggression around the world. Bring that newly found outrage at international warmongering to any one of the anti-imperialist and anti-war organizations we talk about on this show all the time. The Party for Socialism and Liberation, the Black Alliance for Peace, the Answer Coalition, any one of them or any other. We'll hold the door open for you. But me? I'm not holding my breath waiting for most of those folks with so much to say about Victor Boot to show up and fight the real threat to global peace, and that is U.S. imperialism. But I could be wrong. I certainly hope so. Follow Luke Mon Nation on patreon.com slash Nation for lots of great content. Those are today's talking points, and you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman, and as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. By any means necessary. And we're going to keep the movement moving on as they say. We're now happy to be joined by Erica Keynes, founder of Liberation Through Reading and the editor of Hood Communist Blog. Erica, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. 
Absolutely. And Erica, you recently published a piece on hoodcommunist.org entitled Reject Anti-Intellectualism. And I think this is an important point to focus on in this moment, particularly as we continue to see the contradictions of capitalism and imperialism and white supremacy sharpening inside the United States and around the world. And, uh, you know, because of a number of circumstances and factors, there's just sort of a deep lack of of analysis and uh, critical thought and political literacy that that is happening in this country. And I think, unfortunately, a serious issue of just actual uh, literacy, as I'm sure we'll discuss. And within uh, movement circles, if we want to frame it in that way, there's just this strange trend of uh, anti-intellectualism that sort of devalues and in some cases uh, even stigmatizes the whole concept of study and things like that, substituting study for, you know, lived experience and uh, vibes and whatever else. You know what I mean? And so I was hoping you could sort of break down, you know, just why this sort of thinking is dangerous uh, for our people and our class in this moment. Because, I mean, to me, not only does it create a situation where people just have a fundamental misunderstanding of things happening around them. I also think a lot of it translates to, I mean, insulting the intelligence of poor and working people. But how do you see it? Right. So, um, as you know, that I, I have my program, Liberation Through Reading, where I gift uh, books to African children um, in multiple communities, in multiple states. And one of the reasons I started that program, obviously, is because I was aware of Having been an uh, early childhood educator myself in previous years, I was aware of the sort of dynamic that existed within our communities of children just not being interested in reading. So I had the idea of just seeing um, how many children and adults even embrace Black Panther and the idea of seeing themselves. So I had the idea of starting this up. Um, with encouraging children to read. And as the years went on, um, I'm on my fifth year of gifting close to 3,000 books, if not a little above it. I've changed the books. I've challenged children to read um, different types of books. I've encouraged parents who would pick up a picture book to pick up maybe um, a more intensive reading because I understood that the literacy rates in our communities were very, very low. Um, And then overall in the country, literacy is really, um, really bad. I think about 54% of adults in this country read at a sixth grade level. Um, So that's dismal. And and of course, we we can also account that to being by design. Um, But this is why I felt the the necessity to to write this, this piece, because I was noticing the way that people were talking about engaging reading as being something that was just um, elitist, a pastime that uh, people, real people, or the everyday person couldn't afford to do um, and made it like a privilege. And considering, as you noted, like the dynamics that we're in, I mean, we are really in a propaganda war at this moment. That is very dangerous. Um, and, and the fact that it's becoming a more and more common um, thing where just reading and is sort of rejected or grouped into this idea of academia, 
and intellectualism being like, you know, solely academic or tied to that um, is really um, a hindrance to the way that we're able to organize, especially politically educate our communities. Yeah, that's what I wanted to get into next. How uh, does the continued focus on anti-intellectualism uh, feed into thwarting revolution? And, and, you know, why is that still so easily done, particularly since we are in, as you pointed out, a wartime propaganda uh, kind of uh, moment? Right. Um, I think one of the examples that I used that really alerted me to like, oh, so this really is a thing. Because, um, you know, you see things online, but you don't really know what sticks offline in that sort of sense. I noted the example of uh, AOC and Vanity Fair a while back and the quote in, in the article. She's saying that, you know, uh, quote, when people say I'm not socialist enough, I find it that very classic. It's like what I didn't read enough books for you, buddy. End quote. And she's sort of like mocking the idea of reading. Like that was what makes one a socialist. Like you don't necessarily have to read to expound socialist ideas or to be a socialist. Um, so she was basically sort of weaponizing that anti-intellectualism in a way to subvert any criticism about what she's doing while, you know, carrying on that moniker and that ideology of being a socialist and the ways that she's moving. And to me, that I feel like, again, that's a hindrance because people are really latching on to that. I even see things as reactionary as saying, well, in the Haitian Revolution, they didn't require reading. But then that sort of misunderstands why we would read about the Haitian Revolution. It's not to read and learn that, oh, these people weren't reading, but it's actually to read and study and to engage these ways to come up to understand the sort of roadmap and blueprint that's already laid out for us and how far we can take it. I'm always reminded of uh, Dhruva Ben-Wahad always says um, we're fighting battles we've already won. And there's no way to understand that if we're not engaging uh, books and engaging these works. And sure, they're very lengthy and hefty, but I think they're important. And I also think that the, the concept of Reading is not for the everyday per well, not not for the everyday person, but the everyday person doesn't have time to read. And obviously, we know Marxist theory of alienation. That's by design. People are working consistently. People are, you know, I myself and my mother have a parent, so you know, people really don't have time to squeeze in those times. But that also neglects that the way that people have been able to make political education accessible, uh, podcasts and. and videos and audiobooks and, and uh, visual learning and, and all different types of techniques to reach that everyday person that really does not have the time. And I think that when people sort of, sort of grasp onto the idea, because people are seemingly very anti-academic in this moment, now that people are sort of understanding the mechanisms of, cer of certain institutions, um, is a, a very reactionary uh, take to just be generally um, anti-academic to the point where intellectualism is something that's just seen as merely academic and reading and engaging these works, the same works that we can point that are revolutionaries that folks quote daily have read and engaged and studied and made, made away from. I just think that it, it really does put a hindrance if we don't really understand the basics. Yeah, and I want to reiterate a point that you made in your piece, uh, Erica, that you alluded to a moment ago, because you point out that 54% of U.S. adults aged 16 to 74 years old, that's about 130 million people 
in the world's wealthiest nation that lack proficiency in reading, which, as you note, means that they read below a sixth grade level. So there are obviously dynamics of uh, capitalist exploitation and racism and all these things that uh, factor into that as well. But also the people who hold these kind of beliefs, I mean, number one, they conflate study and political education with like the, you know, elite echelons of academia. And, you know, certainly that that is a real element that exists. But to compare that to, you know, poor working and oppressed people engaging in political education in order to uh, basically sharpen themselves in so many ways to carry through this struggle is just wrongheaded at best. And at worst, as you know, Derek, and I agree, it's a downright reactionary. And even if we look back at history and the way that this has looked um, throughout time, and you know, in your piece as well. You know, communists in Alabama during the Depression era talked about, you know, there were these sharecroppers that had, you know, very little, if any, formal education that were engaging in Marxist theory. Uh, uh, sometime later after that, uh, you know, you had a young uh, black people reading things like the Black Liberation Army Study Guide. I mean, if you go throughout a revolutionary history, you'll, you'll find these accounts of uh, peasants and poor workers uh, engaging in serious uh, study. And so understanding that it becomes clear that the problem is not uh, the intellectual capacity of the masses of people. I would argue it's a matter of organizers understanding and frankly doing the work to figure out the best ways of uh, communicating these ideas and uh, uh, taking part in political education, which we on the show maintain has to be, you know, a dialogue and a monologue. So people are learning as they're teaching, teaching as they're learning and so on. And so so it seems then, Erica, that when we talk about political education and study, that is best played out, or I should say it's most beneficial when it's directly connected to a political project and is part and parcel of our broader uh, organizing work. Right. Um, it's also important to note, like, after post-revolutions, um, in the process of creating new societies, they always, always put emphasis and start with a literacy program. Uh, we can look at Cuba or Grenada or Nicaragua, we can look at Guinea-Bissau, like there's countless examples of the first things first is get our people literate um, because we know through colonial education and imperialism and such, that is the result is a very, very illiterate people. And that's why I always, I believe in, in the concept of a, a you know, internal colony as far as we see ourselves as African people. And we can look at these examples of high literacy rates, which is why I, I, I still emphasize that, you know, to say anti-intellectualism is not merely, it's not merely just, um, you know, just saying like people are like hostile towards knowledge or formal education, but it's really counter-revolutionary. Uh, what it does is it's informed by reactionary opinions and it shapes and constructs um, and upholds the ideas of the ruling class and power because we understand ultimately that undermining new knowledge and new ideas as relevant sort of plays into the ruling class um, and encourages um, 
or discourages our organizing capabilities. So if people are not able to critically think, then what does it mean to really dissect and understand propaganda? How are we really understanding tools of propaganda? Like how are we dissecting and understanding or even taking in or informing ourselves what we are taking in, of what we are taking in through mainstream media and such? Like we can say, sure, mainstream media is a tool of the state, but how are people really being able to digest that and understand that if, they are illiterate and they really don't have critical thinking skills. To, and, and then that becomes where a situation where it doesn't really, things are not necessarily needing to be fact-based evidence. It could just be based on how one feels that we've seen this or just based on the way that it's information is told to them. But we see the countless examples of this, even um, during the, uh, the start of the, the proxy war in Ukraine, where, you know, we had TikTokers breaking it down without any, you know, any uh, citations or any sources, primary sources, you know, these little short videos that people could just eat up without necessarily having to investigate. How are people going to know how to investigate if they, with the illiteracy rates at this level, you know? So I, I maintain that this is really a hindrance to how we organize because people make it seem like these pastimes are only something that happen in a certain sector of society and not something that is necessary for how we move forward. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I got to be honest, I hate that too. Like I remember there was, you know, this this woman who made a TikTok about the war in Ukraine and it went viral and it was really just like a rehashing of everything we see in the imperialist media. But people took to it because of her presentation and her what to me felt like a forced use of African-American vernacular English. But we thank you so much, Erica, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio but it can watch DC. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about fighting U.S. imperialism on the African continent. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Hermela Aragawi, journalist and founder of Eyes on Africa News. Hermela, thanks so much for joining us. Sean, Jackie, thank you guys. Jacqueline, thank you for um, having me. Absolutely. And uh, Hermela, next week, uh, U.S. President Joe Biden will be uh, hosting African leaders from across the continent here in Washington, D.C. for the U.S. Africa Leaders Summit. Now, uh, according to the State Department website, this uh, uh, summit is uh, being carried forth to basically demonstrate uh, what they're describing as Washington's ongoing commitment to Africa and wanting to improve U.S. Africa. 
Africa relations. And uh, the page says that they will cover issues of economic engagement, uh, uh, reinforcing commitments to democracy, human rights and civil society, which is interesting, uh, strengthening a global health security, promoting food security, responding to climate crisis, amplifying diaspora ties, all of these sorts of things. And there's actually going to be an event this weekend that's being held in response to this uh, uh, upcoming uh, U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit uh, entitled the Africa People's Forum, a vision for new U.S.-Africa relations also being held here in D.C. Uh, that will be co-moderated by uh, you, Hermela, and uh, Yoli on Ogbu. And so to begin, I was hoping you could help us understand why did you all see it as uh, important to organize uh, an African People's Summer, excuse me, an African People's Forum in response to the African Leaders Summit and what can folks expect? Thank you. Yeah, you know, I, I'm really looking forward to this forum. I think it's going to be incredibly educational. Uh, you and Jacqueline are going to be on uh, one of the panels about narrative and the importance of correcting the narrative to then uh, push for different policies for African peoples everywhere, both on the continent and off the continent. You know, often it, it starts with a, a, a twisting of the narrative. Um, and then you're able to pass any sort of policies that you want because of that. And then some of the other um, uh, panels that are happening is economic development as a human right, um, how the U.S. policy in Africa can be reformed to actually support economic development. Um, and then just uh, a panel about connecting the struggles both on the continent and off the continent. Um, in terms of exploitation, the tools are often the same. So when we got together and, and, and decided to do this forum, it was because once again, you know, you had the U.S. government and, and officials within the government saying that they care about collaboration with Africa, but it's always on their terms. And, um, you know, an example for what their terms is when it comes to Ethiopia is they always give platform and space for these tribalist voices, not so much for voices that are pro the unity of Ethiopia, for peace in Ethiopia. Um, and it, it, they, they drown out the majority of voices. Um, and so there was actually a meeting ahead uh, of the summit through somebody within um, U.S. government. They called a bunch of African diaspora folks, like Ethiopians or trans and um, others from the other parts of the continent that lived in the DMV area. And the sense that I got from talking to people is they didn't feel like they were hurt. It was just all about the optics. So if the U.S. is really serious um, about supporting economic development in Africa, and frankly, the way things are set up, the continent needs the U.S. to support it to some degree. So they're giving aid, which is something that um, Elias Amara, an Eritrean researcher, talks about. They, they give aid to countries in the continent, but um, his but what he says is the way they give aid is actually undercutting development. So they'll, you know, given forms of food. So they, they dump all this excess food from the West um, onto the continent, um, sometimes during times of emergency, but other times during times of, um, you know, harvest, according to him. So it, it desensitizes farmers in the area and, and it actually leads to food insecurity instead of food security. Um, and so, those are the type of things that are just not well known by, you know, African people everywhere. And I think it's really good to get in the same room and say, 
why is it that we're always talking about or we're often talking about certain African countries having a food insecurity problem when they actually have the land and the resources to be able to do uh, to, to, to be able to produce plenty of food, um, even enough to export. And so the way aid is given as part of that, but also the way the international financial institutions are set up, absolutely hinder development. The U.S. and the West dominate those institutions. The dollar is still um, incredibly powerful. I mean, you see a, a country like Ethiopia that's just coming out of war uh, on some level, but economically it is deep uh, in some serious debt. So it's it's had to fight this insurgency against this old regime that was around for 27 years, had the backing of the West, and decided to start a war two years ago. And coming out of that war, it's trying to figure out how to economically survive. So I think with that panel where we're talking about economic development as a human right, it's true everywhere. It's true on the continent. It's true right here in the United States. When people do not have their basic needs met, when they don't have the sense of security, when they don't have uh, the, the ability to, to, to know that they have food, um, that's where violence happens. I mean, that's where conflict happens. That's where... You know, it's essentially the lack of insecurity is created through those conditions. So the U.S. has to be, because it dominates these spaces, we as a people have to be able to get together and say, you're saying you're supporting economic development, but here's what you can do um, to actually do that. And so I love that the space is really genuinely pan-African. There's some folks that are African-born, um, other African people's um, that, that were, you know, generations here. And it's just really cool to see that there's so many overlaps. I mean, Erica Kane from Black Alliance for Peace will talk about the connection between AFRICOM on the continent and the way policing is done here, particularly policing of Black folks. So it's the more you, and you know this, but the, the for the audience, the more you look into it, you realize the formula is really the same everywhere. I mean, I came here when I was seven years old from Ethiopia, and I remember talking to kids in, in Mississippi and them having such a like negative view of what Africa was. And then there was some, like with the adults, when they came here back in the 90s, they also had really stereotypical views, some of them, about what African, being African-American on the con on, in the U.S. was because of the media, the U.S. media and the Western media that was on the continent. And so I think we're far away from those sort of stereotypical views, but I still think there's a lot of work to be done in terms of connecting struggles and really organizing and getting in the same room, which is what we're going to do on Sunday, which I think is incredibly powerful. Um, we've been doing a lot of stuff online, but I just think, you know, and, and you know this, when you get in the same room and when you're building these connections, um, they tend to have a greater impact. So that's what we're doing in Washington, D.C. on Sunday between 1 p.m. and 6 p.m., three panels, about a, an hour each, you have to register to get in. It's at the Air Train um, Culture and Civic Center in Washington, D.C. on 24th Street. But all of the information is on AfricanPeoplesForum.org where people can register. Yeah, this is definitely a great event, and I'm looking forward to it, Hermela. And, you know, one of the uh, focuses of the U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit is 
uh, advancing peace, security, and good governance, and reinforcing commitment to democracy, human rights, and civil society. How will the uh, African People's Forum address those very imperialist goals uh, that the U.S. is setting out for the con- continent, but uh, uh, setting or turning those uh, goals on its head to be more people's people focused and uh, to advance uh, a desire for the people to uh, lift up how they want democracy, human rights uh, uh, to be reflected in civil society? I think, you know, I think those two words, democracy and human rights, need to get redefined. The U.S. has its own definition of them, both here in the States and on on the African continent. And it's whatever they want it to be, however, in whatever scenario they want it to be. But when you push back and say, okay, how about the human right of being able to survive and and have a sense of security um, and, and be able to you know, to eat, like, then that doesn't matter as much because you've got a third of the continent under sanctions. Uh, you've got all these different ways that the financial institutions undercut development. So I think the people have to define what they mean by democracy and human rights. You know, we we, we go to the polls, um, you know, every two years here in the United States, but it's not always leading, like, it's often not leading to the kind of development and, and progress that we're looking for. There's, you know, all kinds of issues of insecurity, starting from police brutality, the, the, the lack of access to just basic food, even here in the United States. We saw it during the pandemic. There were kids lining up uh, for food. There were families lining up for food. I live in California. So we saw there were people that were dependent on the state to be able to eat in a time of the pandemic. So I think that it, it's just, there's often what, what's been successful, I think, from the U.S. standpoint in terms of being able to define the government, uh, their own terms of democracy and human rights, is often that people are divided based on these false superficial lines that they create. So on the African continent, they will often use ethnicity or tribe, and there are a lot of people that just fall into the trap. Here in the United States, I'm not, you know, I'm not an expert. I don't want to necessarily offend folks, but they have a million ways of dividing us, whether it's like our views on, you know, LGBT, our views on, uh, you know, abortion, our views on this. I mean, those things are all legitimate, but when it comes to basic survival needs of black people in the U.S., I think there has to be some sort of a strong coalition that says, yes, those things are important and we will deal with them and we'll, you know, but we also need to stay as unified as possible because that's when you have these policies that are passed that are bad for everybody. So I think for me, the the number one thing um, at this forum is really to get in the same page with experts like you guys that's been doing the work. And uh, Jacqueline, you and I have talked about this. When you look at what is happening both here and on the African continent, and when you really dig deep into it, the policies are intended to do exactly what they do. Like aid is an exact, a, a, a perfect example of that. So you force, essentially they're forcing it on parts of um, Ethiopia. They've been doing it for decades where they, they insist on giving you aid because what they do is they undercut your ability to be able to make your own food through sanctions, through um, different financial means, through fast fueling conflict. And then they insist on having this aid um, uh, come at certain times. And then now you've got farmers that feel like we cannot compete with U.S. aid free food. So 
Then you have food insecurity. I mean, we were talking about food insecurity with uh, Ethiopia in the 80s. And the U.S. has been saying, oh, we give you guys all this aid. You know, um, I'm one of the co-founders of the Normal Movement from a year ago, which is a movement against exploitation through disinformation division of war, which and more, which are the things that we're going to address in this forum. And one of the things U.S. government officials have said is, you know, we give you guys this much aid. How dare you say no more? But you've been giving us aid since the 80s. So why is it? that this, the country of 120 million continues to remain in part dependent on aid, right? And we, and Haiti is an example of all these NGOs, I think one of the highest per capita. And yet, Haiti's got all of these issues. So if you're there to help, then why are things not getting better? In, uh, in, in the Sahel region in Africa, the French were there um, to, to help fight allegedly uh, extremism in, in, in that part of the continent. In fact, in some cases, they were actually invited to help do that. But 10 years later, it gets worse. So that's really what we're saying, I think, when we get into this room is these things are happening. They cannot be an accident. At the very least, it's failed policies, even if they're not intentionally failed policies. And I think that when we uh, hear from all of the panelists who come from really different angles, people that come to the forum will be, will feel more empowered, will have the tools to stay resistant to the uh, disinformation that comes from mainstream media and all these different outlets to then divide us, to then create conflict um, among us both here and on the um, African continent. Absolutely. And just to give people a preview of uh, uh, what they can expect this weekend, I mean, it's a pretty stacked panel. I mean, you have uh, Eugene Perrier, Breakthrough News, Paul Sankara, brother of Thomas Sankara, uh, Imani Countess of the U.S. Africa Bridge Building Project, uh, Kamau Franklin of a Community Movement Builders, Nebu Afsaw, who, if, you know, for listeners of the show, will recognize him, a friend of the show, been on several times, uh, Simon Tesfamerium, co-founder of the No More Movement, uh, Elias Asma. Uh, Erica Keynes of the Black Alliance for Peace, and of course, your humble host, by any means necessary, uh, Jackie Lutemont and Sean Blackman. So definitely looking forward to being a part of this uh, august collection of speakers and experts. And we want to thank you so much, uh, uh, Hermela, for being a part of organizing this. And we're going to leave it there for now here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And it's Friday, which means it's time for another edition of our weekly segment, The Red Spin Report, where we discuss sports, politics, and struggle with Nate Wallace, co-host of the Red Spin Sports Podcast. Nate, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, Sean. Glad to be here. Absolutely. And of course, Nate, uh, the top story of uh, sports, meaning the world of geopolitics, is the release of Brittany Griner, who was traded in a prisoner swap for a Russian arms dealer named Victor Bout uh, a little 
earlier this week, and I believe the trade was formally made in uh, the United Arab Emirates. And, you know, there was video of uh, Brittany on the plane. Of course, you know, very, very happy as anyone would be to be released. And uh, I was definitely relieved as well uh, to see she was released. I mean, uh, like anyone, uh, I just felt like her detention was really unfortunate and obviously uh, uh, the result of being caught in between this uh, proxy war with the U.S. and Russia that she had absolutely nothing to do with. And of course, we were following her story right here on uh, the Red Spin Report. And there definitely was a period where it just did not look good for Britney as she didn't seem to be uh, uh, much of a priority for either Moscow or Washington. But uh, there's been a, a, a lot of analysis and uh, discourse uh, around uh, the particulars of this swap, Nate. Some of it pretty wild with some people, I mean, frankly, seeming upset that uh, the trade was uh, uh, even made. I can't help but wonder if it was, you know, Kevin Durant or Tom Brady, if there would be uh, so much of this type of analysis. But I'm generally curious, you know, your thoughts about not only uh, how the grind situation has played out, but, you know, just uh, how you're sort of analyzing uh, uh, some of uh, the chatter around it. Yeah, it's, as you mentioned, we, we've been talking about this for a while in these uh, Friday segments, and and the Brittany Griner thing has, you know, it's there's no doubt that the, the timing of her going into Russia at the same time, um, almost almost exactly that the uh, special military operation was being launched. Um, the unfortunate reality that she, that, you know, I, I do believe her. I think she probably forgot she had the, the those. Uh, cannabis oil cartridges in there because you know you fly internationally uh you it's just something you you wouldn't want to do and i think that you know she it, you know, admitted it was a mistake but she's clearly was caught up in, in the into a bigger into a bigger game and, and the reality is these are the kind of things you know the reasons 10 months later i think that you know who knows i mean if she would have just been caught i mean a lot of people think she was targeted for various reasons and whatnot uh i think it was more just you know she was they found it in her bags at the airport. Um, it's international travel. I mean, this is stuff that happens with people coming into the U.S. too. I mean, you're coming in here. Uh, you think our like border, you know, uh, U.S. What is it? Customs and border enforcement. They're, they're they're not sitting there like just letting people roll on in here. We have people like it seems that have forgotten that we have the largest prison population in the world, really, in the in, in proportion to the population in the history of the world. So. I think it's great that, that, that Brittany's coming home, but I do think it's worth looking at who Victor Boot is too and analyzing why it is that we're in this hysterical kind of uh, analysis, sort of hysterical analysis we're hearing about, about Boot, how, you know, we're letting this arms dealer out who could potentially be flooding the battlefields in Ukraine for, for Russia with all these arms that suddenly only he could procure, right? Um, I mean, I just saw a tweet from Michael Tracy who was talking about how Boot had you know flew huge amounts of uh you know weaponry and and supply um supplies into iraq to help the u.s war effort and uh you know was a was an asset you know working in that with that you know with, with that effort he would you know i guess work in for the highest bidder or whatnot but people seem to be really outraged at like uh this idea that that you know Oh, you know, Biden got screwed or something. You know, you, you, they get an arms dealer back and we just get like a basketball player, which is just really the wrong way to look at it. I mean, he, it, even the judge in Victor Boot's case probably, had said that he, she thought the sentencing guidelines were excessive and that, you know, he'd already served over, over a decade or more. And this was a whole DEA 
trap essentially entrapment case that came out of Thailand. So they try to make these sort of, you know, you know, to equate him to essentially the Nicholas Cage character that loosely played Victor Boot um, in Lord of War 2004 is a big mistake. And uh, it's just too bad that the that Griner's case, who she's, she's really not, you know, super, you know, big, big, he doesn't get into geopolitics a lot. Um, is playing over in Russia because, you know, the WNBA season's the length of it's short and the amount they make is, is, uh, is, is not that great compared to, you know, male professional sports. And, uh, so they play, they make more money in places like Russia in the off season. So that's one of the context that got us here. And now we're just seeing reaction go in all different kinds of ways. People not saying that we're abandoning a Marine and Paul Whelan. I don't think it's that simple. I mean, I, I still don't think it's clear what he was doing over there. He was, we know he was photographing a lot of, uh, Russian military, you know, border installations, um, his family obviously claims, uh, that he was completely innocent. Um, so that's whether or not there was actually a deal to trade Victor boot for Whelan and Biden administration said, no, is something we, we should, you know, be interested in hearing, but, um, it doesn't, should at all take away from being happy that, that Bernie Griner's returning, regardless of what the motivations were for the Biden administration, um, and wanting to, to, to pull this off. And, and part of it certainly is like trying to push this narrative that, you know, we are the freedom loving West and we're doing everything we can to help political prisoners while Russia is just this, just this penal colony dungeon state where you go to be cut off from the world, you know, with no sense of irony being that like, look what's happening to Julian Assange right now in the UK and look how aggressively we're trying to, you know, essentially ruin his life and make sure that, um, never sees the light of day for publishing nothing but factual information about us war crimes. So there, there's a lot of stuff that, that goes into this, but yeah, well, if you're, if you're literally mad that, that she's home now, you probably need to look yourself in the mirror a little bit. Yeah. I, I have been finding that, you know, the pushback on that I'm getting or, or seeing from people about, Oh, this is a bad deal because, you know, Victor Boot is a convicted arms dealer. And I realize that people are only saying that because of what they've seen in the media. They've literally never heard of Victor Boot before, have not considered, you know, that if they're upset about arms dealers, then what does it mean that the U.S. government is paying defense contractors to to produce arms <laughs> that they have been dealing to the rest of the world, uh, creating the conflicts that uh, make people who sell weapons to the conflict actors pretty much millionaires or billionaires, honestly. But I, I, I just feel like this is such a weird response for people to have who have never considered the implications of U.S. imperialism ever uh, at, at any time before. But all of a sudden, now they're concerned about the proliferation of weapons around the world in a case where Brittany Griner has been released, and, and it's very strange to me. And I think I echo Sean's point at, at the top of the question. You know, I don't think people would be this concerned about who was released in exchange for someone like Tom Brady. But it's odd that this concern is coming from uh, the release of uh, Brittany Griner, and all of a sudden people have this bizarre geopolitical lens that didn't exist before. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this has been, 
I mean, the, the, the mental gymnastics required to, to really, you know, get upset about the, uh, the, the arms dealer nature of this, this whole arms dealer, international arms dealer we keep hearing is it, it, just, it's just astounding to me. I mean, it's just, it really, you think, uh, what was it? I mean, Danny Highfarn's book, what American exceptionalism, American innocence, right? It's like the encapsulation of that to be able to think like that. Um, the only way you can possibly think like that is to believe in sort of a, a heavy, heavy dosage of, a. Uh, American exceptionalism and also with a side order of, of innocence too. Um, and the idea that if we do it, it's just like, it, it's not a crime by definition, sort of, I think that's sort of the mentality. That's how like a lot of people that are, you know, in that, in that sort of ideological space, it's certainly how our intelligence agencies operate. Um, all everything's fair. As long as, as we do it, it's not a crime somehow. And that's, yeah, and you're right. And, and, and the views of, of who Victor Dude is, um, and you're right. The, uh, it's not about the conflicts that we literally fuel that, that are literally you know financed and paid for by the, the, the arms you know exports that come out of the U.S. That um, by the the the, the, the sort of uh, covert maneuvering um, to create chaos in certain countries in order to create the political instability needed for. Um, the U.S. military presence or U.N. peacekeepers to come in. Um, and then you have situations. Well, and, and, and there's no, and the reality is, where is it, where are these places, where, where are these events happening? They're happening in places with strategic natural resources, supply, strategic supply chain routes um, that are critical to maintaining the sort of engine that is, uh, you know, the, the U.S. You know, global economy, a U.S.-led global economy, rules-based order, right? So what we're seeing is, and you're right, your point about like, this was Tom Brady, you know, he probably wouldn't even have to, he never would have been in Russia in the first place because he, uh, you know, doesn't have to, you know, play for extra money in the off season. Right. Uh, Yeah. So you make all his money here in the States. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, we're not even talking about why she was over there in the first place. And, uh, you know, but then you really, we really do have to touch on I me. Mean, I know it's, 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 it seems like low hanging fruit to talk Jason Whitlock, but it's like not just Jason Whitlock's of the world. Um, this narrative too, that because she was, it's almost like this, this weird twisting of like, you know, white privilege or like, you know, class, whatever kind of, you know, straight in saying that no, now the Biden administration is so like, you know, into like the LGBTQ stuff and, and pushing that, that like now they're, um, you know, if she were just a, a straight, a straight woman or like, you know, wasn't, you know, uh, didn't have this identity, you know, didn't have the, uh, the LGBTQ community behind, um, behind her that somehow she'd still be over there. I'm like, man, Sean, you said, I mean, Russia could care less about that. They care about just matter of factly, like we're at war with the collective West, you know, the war, they won't declare it. We, you know, the West won't declare it, but, um, it is, it's obvious it's the proxy war, but there's real boots on the ground. And reality is, uh, she's a bargaining chip. I mean, it's no different than how any country would behave in this situation. It doesn't make it pretty. It's not, um, something, you know, you, you want to see, but let's, 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 let's grow up. I and mean, we're living in a world where Julian Assange is in a dungeon right now for telling the truth. Right. So let's quit acting like we live in this, like, you know, sort of a city on a hill where, you know, we're like lording over the rest of the world with our concern. We we're, we're so advanced and, and, and considerate of, of all kinds of people's rights that we have to go around and, and police everybody else. That's just isn't quite as enlightened as us sort of, that's the mentality of that. So the idea that then the, the people on the right now can twist it to say that, you know, the Biden administration, you know, that's 
they're they're trying to use this now that the you know, the gay marriage issue going through Congress has been in been been in the media, and that somehow like she benefited from that. Man, you really got to do some gymnastics there because uh, it's just it's just so wild. But it's like that that stuff is gaining traction. The idea that somehow she's being given special treatment in prisoner swap exchange uh, talks over like this Paul Whelan and other like. American heroes, even Dallas Cowboy linebacker Micah Parsons stepped in it a little bit, saying, you know, kind of making that point. I don't know where he's from in terms of political ideology, but saying that, oh, I'm not trying to be hateful of, of, of Griner. You know, I've just got family members in, uh, in the military, and like, you know, I, I think we should be doing all they can that all we can to get them home. Well, who's saying we're not? And then the, the reality is that, that Brittany Griner and Paul Whelan are not the same individuals, right? Um, I mean, we can't, I mean, just there, you know, he's, uh, she was just playing basketball, right? Like, you know, it had, unfortunately had this cannabis oil cartridge in her, uh, in her luggage. And he is someone that we, I don't know for sure, but there's certainly signs that, you know, that if I just, all I'll say is that there was a Russian national over here taking pictures of us military border installations. Right. And just sort of hanging out like a tourist, um, and then just has all these, all this, you know, these, these films on their camera. Uh, you know, our, uh, our our security officials want to be just uh, like, oh yeah, well, no big deal. I'm sure he's just over here. He just really wanted to explore the the great outdoors here in America. You know, it's like it's not how it works. So it, it, to act like these are the same people, the same set of circumstances, is just completely disingenuous, and that needs to be pointed out. Definitely. And I want to reiterate that point, you know, pushing back on this narrative that that's completely absurd that Brittany Griner was somehow uh, uh, targeted because she's black and a woman and, and lesbian and that that had some kind of special significance to the Russian government. On the one hand, I think it shows the bubble that people in the United States live in when, when, when they steadily imbibe this imperialist propaganda. And here in the absence of a real understanding of geopolitics, a real understanding of U.S. U.S. imperialism and the different dynamics happening uh, against the backdrop of all this. In the absence of that, people have substituted for, you know, your kind of uh, standard like bourgeois identitarian sort of talking points that don't have any resonance or relevance in issues like this that actually matter. I mean, it's just a fact that, you know, most people across the world simply don't think this way. I mean, this notion that she would somehow not have suffered this fate if she had been, you know, white or straight or man or, or any of these sorts of things that's stupid y'all it's, it's just stupid the, the Russian government and no sovereign government, they literally do not care about that sort of thing. It's important to some people here because we think that's what politics are. But in the realm of things that actually matter and have consequences, it just doesn't. But moving on, uh, uh, Nate, I also wanted to touch on this issue of uh, the Washington commanders, this ongoing uh, saga with Dan Snyder, uh, this report about uh, uh, the allowing of a you know toxic culture, a cover up of sexual harassment, all these things have been released. Uh, emails have been leaked, uh, you know, uh, considering uh, John Gruden, a uh, former coach of the Raiders. And so a ton happening there. So what's the latest with Snyder here? Yeah, I mean, it's just more uh, just just every week. There's just more drip. I mean, this is just like this is new, though, the, the, this this piece, um, you know, about what's happening here um, with 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 Snyder's connection to John Gruden emails and former team president Bruce Allen. Um, who was, you know, 
you know, connected to the, the old the, the coach you know, George Allen, uh, formerly, and then I think his brother was George Allen, the uh, this junior who was the senator and governor from Virginia. But he was the one involved in the emails with with John Gruden. Now, the school of thought would be that the NFL would have wanted to leak these um, potentially to. You know, the, the not Gruden out for some reason to let people know the kind of power they have. Um, they'll let people know that, that you know, they kind of keep them in line. I mean, the, the, the contents of those emails weren't pretty. I mean, there was a lot of like a lot of racist stuff, homophobic stuff, or just just uh, just just casual banter that uh, they clearly never thought was going to see the light of day in public. But the issue with this with Dan Snyder is that perhaps with all the things coming after him with the sexual abuse allegations. And, you know, let's not forget that John Gruden even was never associated with the Washington franchise, even though his brother Jay was the head coach at a certain point that, you know, he was acting in his role as Monday night football color analyst, you know, emailing with different team executives, trying to get information and tell the use, I guess during broadcast, um, you know, to help, you know, whatever, just to be in the know. And, uh, the fact that it potentially, because of Snyder's testimony, uh, because of a 79-page document that came out um, that includes all sorts of information about the the the, you know, the timeline with regards to Snyder and the, the just the toxic workplace allegations, the, the sexual harassment allegations, um, you know, it, it, you see in there that there's a, a school of thought that. That, that these emails did come from Snyder. They was they were floated in conversation with Bruce Allen and enough Bruce Allen being the former official with the wash with Washington, um, talking with the NFL office. And it basically, you know, it's not that I put a lot of credence in what comes out of the NFL office. They have their own reasons to try to probably deflect on this too, but it's not surprising. It wouldn't surprise me to see, you know, Dan and Tanya Snyder, you know, try to you know change the subject a little bit away from having all the smoke on them and uh and just kind of like you know throw something out there also to let people know um uh, put people on notice i mean snyder's been notorious for always collect wanting to collect intel and have as much information on people uh kind of like jagger hoover style almost um to uh, potentially make to, to ensure their their loyalty essentially right um and this so this would be you know, I don't know if it would be up that playbook necessarily, but I do think that there's something potentially there because we still do not know where these leaks came from. And I do think it matters in terms of figuring out the timeline. I think Snyder is toast, that he will be gone eventually. The NFL has decided um, he, he needs to go. But how it goes down will be interesting because it, it involves a lot of power. It involves a lot of people's legacies and their reputations. And so some of those people may be trying to deflect this on the Snyder because he's an easy punching bag now and a deserving one, but nonetheless, uh, you know, an easy one too. And I think there's, there's certainly reason to believe it's plausible uh, given the, all the, all the circumstances in play, given the, the litany of lawsuits Snyder's facing. We talked about the one in DC uh, most recently um, where you know, he's accused of essentially committing fraud against the residents of the district of Columbia so there's a, and with this, the same with the NFL, with, with Bruce Allen, John Gruden, the emails, you know, who had the most to gain. I tend to think that it's, it does make sense that while you could say that it doesn't, you know, Snyder had issues with Bruce Allen too. He was, we know that he was trying to, 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 you know, embarrass him, dig up dirt. He wanted to put distance between 
Allen and, and the franchise. So um, he clearly had motive to to want to embarrass Allen. I'm not sure about Gruden necessarily, but those were the two that were mainly emailing back and forth. And it certainly did work to uh, to change the focus. So uh, we're going to have to see more come out. But it's, um, you know, th- this needs to be explored beyond just the hearsay of what Allen said, this NFL official said to him. But that's where we are now, and uh, you know, hopefully we can we can we can learn some more as uh, as moves forward. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Nate, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Friday, December 9th, 2022. And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to Give us a call here by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on this show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you, but that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you would, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us. That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices, and comrades, that's y'all, to reach out and touch us at By Any Means Necessary here in Washington, D.C. You can do that at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But you can also listen to our shows at SputnikNews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in By Any Means Necessary. You can also hear us on Sputnik.com. Mave, that's M-A-V-E dot digital. And you can listen live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern time each weekday. And we're streaming for your viewing pleasure on Rumble right now. That's rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. We most certainly do. And uh, I wanted to start off the hour today, Jackie, by talking about some recent attacks on power grids that have been going on uh, here in the United States. People may be aware of the situation in uh, Moore County, North Carolina, where tens of thousands of people were left without power after uh, two power substations were shot up uh, here recently. These were uh, Duke Energy uh, substations. And uh, this attack coincided with uh, a planned drag show in a place called uh, Southern Pines that had uh, already been targeted targeted by uh, a right-wing uh, harassment, I should say, uh, a far-right. And, you know, this, uh, you know, fuel speculation that 
uh, you know, that this uh, basically may have been motivated by anti-LGBTQ bigotry. And law enforcement has not yet confirmed that that is, in fact, the case, but they're not ruling it out either. Uh, investigators are also looking into other uh, uh, potential explanations, uh, including uh, whether this is a part of a broader uh, campaign uh, uh, from these far-right extremists to attack uh, infrastructure here in this country. Now, according to Moore County Sheriff Ronnie Fields, uh, whoever carried out this attack, quote, knew exactly what they were doing, uh, with investigators finding nearly two dozen shell casings at uh, uh, the crime scene. And there have been other such attacks that have uh, come to light, at least five, uh, uh, you know, in uh, Oregon and Washington State uh, were reported to the FBI in uh, late November, according to the Seattle Times. And so, you know, even though it isn't yet uh, confirmed that there's a direct connection between the attack on these power substations and this sort of anti-LGBTQ bigotry and attacks on drag shows and other events that we've been seeing across the country. I think what is clear is that uh, this far-right violence campaign is, in fact, escalating. And and I don't think it's um, uh, an exaggeration to call this a kind of burgeoning terror campaign, um, which it already was uh, with these uh, attacks against the LGBTQ community that are sort of spurned on by Republicans and right wing media and, you know, things like that. And I feel like I should add also the uh, refusal of uh, Democrats to, you know, really fight uh, for uh, these, uh, you know, alongside these issues. But I just sort of generally wondering uh, how you are considering these attacks on uh, these power stations, Jackie, because it uh, definitely feels uh, uh, uneasy for me, at least, to see that uh, things are trending in this direction. Yeah, it does for me. And, I, and I've been paying attention to this story for a couple of days, really not sure what to make of it. At first, you know, there was just kind of the general attack on uh, uh, energy stations in uh, uh, Seattle and Washington state. And then the stories, well, actually the first story that came out was the one in South uh, North Carolina. Then there were the connected uh, attacks on other Duke energy stations in uh, other southern cities like in Florida. So at first there was that, oh, you know, somebody hates Duke energy like a lot <laughs> idea. But then when the other stories kind of started to emerge about the attacks on uh, uh, substations in the West, on the West Coast, then it was like, wait, these are not Duke energy companies. These are uh, energy providers. And these are attacks on the power grid. And that's when I, I started to think, wait, there's something else going on here that's bigger than, you know, like what you see in the movies, you know, the environment, radical environmental activists, that kind of thing. And, and I really think that for too long in this country, the uh, law enforcement apparatus has gotten people to believe that the threat of violence is connected with the so-called left, right? Mm -hmm. Like if, if you watch any movie or if you even watch so-called credible news sources, you'll see that any uh, uh, violence in regard to uh, um, uh, mass movements is always framed in, 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 in be, as being carried out by folks on the left. But very rarely, if ever, is any attention paid to these far right wing fascist elements 
that are much more likely in real life to cause harm to people, to human beings, as well as wholesale uh, uh, damage to property in furthering their agenda. And I really think that these attacks on uh, uh, electric uh, electricity substations and really the attack on the power grid in this country is a result of two things. The growing right wing uh, a movement in this country that law enforcement has ignored for spending all of their time and attention targeting black folks as black identity extremists and and all that kind of thing uh, and let those folks go, go under the radar. Uh, even after January 6th now, mm-hmm. where it, it was kind of obvious that there's a big old problem with white right wing violence in this country, still not a lot of attention was paid to it. And I think that this is a another manifestation of this and also of how well organized they are, Sean. I think that's the thing that's kind of frightening in that in these attacks is that these folks are using very low tech means mm-hmm. <laughs> like shooting up a substation to disable a portion of the power grid and, you know, take uh, 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 thousands of, of uh, public buildings connected to the grid offline. And that means, you know, disconnecting uh, anything from uh, um, home alarm systems to, you know, public announcement system. I mean, it's it's just a math. The implications are massive when you think about how just <laughs> with no real effort, these folks have been able to do that. So that I think that is an these incidents are an indication of that. But it's also an indication of just how ill prepared I think this country is for the kind of coalescing of the right wing that's going on around the world that we're seeing when it finally does kick off for real. Because I, I, I don't want to sound like a conspiratorial nut job, but I really do feel like these kinds of things are like the practice runs for, you know, the real performance, as it were. And I think we'd be foolish to ignore the implications that I think these incidents uh, represent. But I, I just really have the feeling that there's a whole lot more behind this than just a bunch of random, uh, you know, yokels laughing it up, uh, you know, with their semi-automatic rifles or whatever. I think this is an organized, coordinated trial run for something much bigger to come. Yeah. And, you know, when you talk about law enforcement, you know, I, I don't think we can discount the extent to which, you know, how many of them are actually involved in some of these white supremacist groups. You know, you've um got this concept of, uh, of the ghost skins where you have white supremacists that go into law enforcement and go into the military and maybe they don't have uh, all of the uh, identifiable tattoos and maybe they don't always spew the rhetoric, but they're literally in uh, these state institutions so they can, you know, carry out racist violence um, with a legitimacy and literally a license to kill um, <clears throat> uh, endowed by the state with that. You know what I'm saying? And also I'm thinking when you talk about how, you know, the threat of political violence and the onus of that seem is seemingly always um, placed on the left. I think that's part of a kind of uh broader campaign to really 
to frankly conflate the revolutionary left with the reactionary right and to treat them as one in the same and to suggest that they're basically uh, uh, the same, just, you know, maybe uh, the language is different. Maybe the aesthetic is different, but these are just two, you know, dangerous, uh, violent elements that are uh, uh, going after each other. It's like when you hear people um, equate Nazism with communism as, as if they're uh, one in the same. And I feel like even if we look at um, over these past recent years, when we've seen a lot of uh, street confrontations between these different far right groups and uh, different anti-fascist groups, the way that the corporate media frames it is basically two groups of extremists just kind of decking it out. You know, uh, you know, never mind the fact that, you know, these uh, far right elements are straight up reactionary uh, at some point, you know, you know, different flavors of white supremacists. You know, they call themselves all kinds of different things, white nationalists, uh, you know, tra- traditional workers or whatever and what have you. But I just feel like in so many ways, just like when uh, uh, Donald Trump after Charlottesville, I think it was when he was talking about how there were good people on both sides. You know what I'm saying? You know, right. just uh, that, that that sort of thing to basically say that there is no difference uh, between you know, uh, basically a revolutionary uh, communist or socialist or progressive. And, you know, these uh, jackbooted skinheads. And I mean, th- this is what I think uh, uh, undergirds uh, some people's consciousness in this country. And that's straight up dangerous, particularly when we see these uh, uh, terror campaigns like we are uh, seeing here with the attacks on these substations. And I'm thinking about, you know, people remember back during the 90s, during the height of the militia movement. This was a big piece of all of that. That's when you had these people buying huge swaths of land um, in these kind of isolated areas in the United States and doing military trainings and tactical trainings and teaching people how to shoot and how to use these uh, devastating weapons because they were being trained by these disgruntled uh, Vietnam War vets uh, that felt like, uh, you know, they had been basically betrayed uh, uh, by the United States and therefore the U.S. government needs to be um, overthrown. Uh, that's how we got Timothy McVeigh. Right. And if people recall, after the Oklahoma City bombing of uh, the militia movement really took a dive because, you know, uh, number one, uh, 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 children were counted among his victims, you know, and, and for them, what was important is that they were white children. That was included in that. So they certainly couldn't come out in support of McVeigh and and sort of the politics all around that went underground for a while. They never really go away. They never really go away, especially because during that period, they had these developed networks of newsletters and and videos and they were getting each other copies of the Turner Diaries and, and, you know, which is basically like like a handbook for like a racist, uh, you know, white supremacist react, uh, you know, sort of basically a fascist insurrection here in the United States. And so all of that doesn't just disappear. You know what I'm saying? And so even though um, the white supremacist movement today looks somewhat different, um, all of the ear markers are there. I think the main difference is, you know, I I feel like they're more mainstreamed. And I almost feel like the uh, kind of beginning of that was when we saw uh, David Duke uh, run for office in Louisiana and get a good amount of support. And his run, it wasn't terribly unlike uh, Donald Trump's run in the sense that he was positioning himself as a kind of, you know, insurgent right wing uh, force that was going to, you know, do and say what the mainstream Republicans wouldn't. 
you know? And so that's one of the first examples that I think we get of this um, respectable reactionary, as I call it. That, that's like a, a prototype of a person. You know what I mean? That was developed and followed up on by people like uh, Richard Spencer. You know what yeah. I'm saying? Like, I, I always felt like Richard Spencer was kind of the new version of David Duke in the sense that, you know, he wasn't wearing a Klan hood. He wasn't wearing, you know, the suspenders and the T-shirts and the boots and, 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 and the fatigues and all the typical stuff that you think of with white supremacists in this country. He wore a suit and a very stylish uh, uh, hairdo. And he even phrased his racism in a way that was... <laughs> which is weird to say, but it was like more palatable mm -hmm. to current sensibilities in the 21st century. You know what I mean? And he was successful in mainstreaming these far right ideologies to a large extent because these mainstream media platforms kept interviewing him. I mean, they were fascinated with this cat. And I've raised this issue on the show before about how there was a period where it was like the number one story you would see is Black or non-white journalist interviews Richard Spencer. And that was like a draw. Right. You know what I mean? Right. You know, what what a great way to, uh, to, to get ratings. You know what I'm saying? And so there's just so many aspects that are facilitating uh, the fascist creep in this country. And I think we should remember that a capitalist society in and of itself will always hold uh, certain markers of uh, fascism. And as we often discuss on the show, the United States of America is fundamentally undemocratic at its root. It tells us that, you know, it cares about democracy and, and, and all of these sorts of things. But literally from the very beginning, before the United States was even the United States, up until this very day, every effort has been made uh, to ensure that real democracy, participatory democracy, does not become sort of the uh, uh, law of the land. And that's a big part of what we're living through right now with Moore v. Harper and racist voter uh, suppression and all of these sorts of things. And so when I look at these um, attacks on these power stations, uh, I think a couple of things. Number one, to me, it feels like the logical conclusion of so many uh, uh, dynamics and developments that have been happening over the years. I definitely think it is in response to a number of things happening in our current um, political moment. And to your point, I think it does speak not only to the level of organization on their part, on the part of the fascists, but the level of disorganization on the parts of us who need to uh, uh, combat them. And so I think we just really have to start asking serious questions about, you know, uh, how do we prepare ourselves? How do we respond? What is the best way to uh, organize and to really uh, uh, develop uh, community and communication uh, uh, with our people and our class in order to uh, properly respond to these uh, uh, attacks when they happen. And so in my humble opinion, the ruling class really opened the door uh, for these uh, far right attacks, both on the power uh, boxes or, you know, the sort of general attacks that we've been seeing against LGBTQ people, uh, all of these uh, sorts of dynamics that we've been seeing, I think we have to understand them as a consequence and an outgrowth of uh, capitalist exploitation in this country, which, of course, needs white supremacy in order to operate. And so as ever, Jackie, you know, uh, these contradictions don't simply go away. They tend to intensify and worsen. And therefore, it is uh, incumbent upon us to uh, uh, develop and organize in order to reconcile them, you know, for our own safety.
Yeah, I, I mean that's absolutely true, and I and I, I like the way you connected, you know, the 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 far right uh, fascist uh, actions of people like Timothy McVeigh right on up to Richard Spencer, and I would go even further, Sean, and to you know point out the uh, uh, acceptability or the reformation of the fascist in, in, in the United States of the modern fascist where, you know, from Richard Spencer, you've got the what I call them, the 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 khaki Klan march uh, that happened at Charlottesville. Uh, and then from there, you have people like Jordan Peterson, who is like the embodiment of racism or white supremacy in so-called academia or or in uh, uh, intelligentsia. And they've done it. Uh, and, and even you can go to Gavin McGinnis with his you know creation of the Proud Boys. And they've been able to reform the face, the public face of white supremacist fascist violence by really simply changing one phrase from white supremacy to Western chauvinism. That that's what they did. They just stopped saying, look, we're white supremacists and we think that European descended people are better than everybody else in the world. Now it's just Western chauvinism. And that doesn't sound so hateful, does it? That doesn't sound so bad. <laughs> and that's and and so I, I think even with the way they have been so successful at mastering uh, uh, the use of language in, in rebranding themselves, I think that's another indication or another reflection of the the way they are able to out-organize us. But I say that with a caveat, because I also always have to keep in mind, Sean, that the people who will give them platforms, aside from, you know, the crazy, misguided, um, you know, working class and oppressed uh, uh, people of color who who want to get likes and views by having them on their platforms. That's not me. I don't care about these people that much. But, you know, when we're talking about the mainstream media that give these folks platforms, the reason they are able to rebrand themselves the way they do is because, as you pointed out, Sean, this capitalist system feeds and grows off of the exploitation of the oppressed people. And that's not them. So, of course, corporate mainstream media that is uh, uh, um, uh, run by the CEOs, the boards of directors, and the, certainly the politicians and the State Department that prop them up, they are all invested in this American exceptionalism, extremely white supremacist ideology that these folks are very also also uh, also very invested in. So, of course, they are going to be given a level of legitimacy in the media that that we will never get. We because we are a, we are the challenge to that narrative of American exceptionalism and white supremacy and the idea that capitalism and greed is good and that this country is a meritocracy and that it's a democracy. We're the challenge to that. So we'll never be given the kind of legitimacy that someone like Jordan Peterson or someone like Gavin McGinnis, even though, you know, he is persona non grata now because his Proud Boys are a violent gang of thugs, but that they are still given a level of legitimacy on some uh, 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 closer to mainstream outlets than we will ever get. So I do think that we do have to keep in mind when we're talking about how well the right out organizes us, 
we have to remember that the right gets a lot of cover and a lot of help from the yep. very system we're trying to destroy. Definitely. Uh, shout out to the By Any Means Necessary chat. Uh, Ricky Ryan, I believe, was asking about uh, Richard Spencer saying, what, what's he up to these days? Him and, and M- M- Milo, talking about Milo Yiannopoulos. Uh, they're both ruined. Uh, that, 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 that's what that's what's going on. I mean, Richard Spencer. Well, well first, we got to remember that um, the Unite the Right, the original Unite the Right rally, which, you know, literally was supposed to do just that. It was supposed to coalesce all these different fascist movements in the United States. It actually had the opposite effect um, in largely in due part to the death of Hayer Heyer by uh, James Alex Fields uh, uh, hitting her and uh, killing her with his uh, uh, vehicle. And so there was like a big scramble uh, after that. And people were breaking away from Jason Kessler, who was the main organizer of Unite the Right. And uh, people may remember that there was an, uh, an anniversary. There was an attempt to have a Unite the Right too. Um, event here in D.C. And there was, I don't know, maybe 30 some odd of them tops that that came and just a massive, massive uh, anti-fascist counter protest that was organized by the Answer Coalition and others. I mean, it was just pathetic. I mean, it was really a show and seeing that's really what you have to do. I, I just find that that's the best tactic with these types is that, you know, an overwhelming counterforce is usually what uh, uh, really does the trick. But I bring all that up to say that um, a lot of those elements and a lot of those leaders kind of broke away from each other, started sniping at each other and things like that. And after a while, Rich, Richard Spencer, he got, you know, deplatformed off of different things. I remember he got like kicked out of his gym right. uh, and was basically put in a position where he can uh, basically no longer make a living. Um, according to the Southern Poverty Law Center, he still uh, runs, you know, some racist journal or, or whatever, but that's about it. And in terms of Milo Yiannopoulos, well, what 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 sit what triggered his downfall? As people may remember, I believe it was an interview that he gave on uh, the Joe Rogan podcast, and he made some comments that kind of sounded like he was supporting pedophilia, and so that really tanked him. And he was just sort of uh uh you know scraping and scratching, uh, doing whatever he can to remain visible. I seem to remember one time. Hold on, what was that fool's name? Jordan Wall. Yeah, it, whoever the kid who was like pretending to be like a, uh, you know, a financial whiz or whatever and was blown up by, uh, uh, you know, uh, Donald Trump and stuff like that. And him and his homeboy kept putting on these ridiculous uh, um, press conferences. And, you know, like Milo, like showed up one of those uh, randomly. But most recently, Milo was actually a part of Kanye West's entourage, reportedly supposed to be helping him with his uh, 2024 presidential run. Now, why you would choose Milo of all people to do that, I don't know. But I think following the whole Alex Jones debacle, uh, Milo has left. And according to the Daily News, he's actually sent Kanye West a bill for $116,000 uh, for the time that uh, uh, they they worked together. And so, I mean, it's just pathetic uh, what what's happened. But even still, And it's an interesting thing, because even though some of these most prominent figures and representatives and leaders of uh, this latest iteration of the far right movement, even though some of them had basically crumbled, um, really, their mission was accomplished because, you know, those politics are definitely, like I say, been mainstreamed uh, through Trumpism, which gave them a, a sort of a level of 
legitimacy. This is how we get the Lauren Bobears and the Marjorie Taylor Greens and and stuff like that. And even beyond that, the the violence has escalated as well. And so from an ideological standpoint and from an organizational standpoint, they've definitely been successful, even if individuals aren't doing so great. But we're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Myself and Jackie Lukeman in here chopping it up on this good Friday. And we have a caller on the line here, Ingrid. Tell us what's on your mind. Thank you, Sean. Tomorrow, December 10th, is International Human Rights Day. And D.C. Action for Assange will be having a vigil asking for the release of Julian Assange. We'll be at the British Embassy on Massachusetts Avenue from 1 p.m. to 3 p.m., And we are so happy that Jackie is going to be one of the speakers there. She'll be representing Black Alliance for Peace. And thank you so much for doing that, Jackie. And also, thank you. Very interesting discussion you're having. Thank you for calling out Jordan Peterson, who seems to have fooled a lot of people into believing that he's a legitimate academic. Well, thanks a lot, Ingrid. Glad you called in. Hope to hear from you again soon. Jordan Peterson, what a bizarre guy. Like he like it'd be one thing if he was just sort of um, like a run of the mill, like reactionary commentator. I mean, there's plenty of those. But I mean, he's because he claims to like eat like a, a a diet completely of like raw meat. Right. Am I tripping? No, you're you're not. And that's a part of this whole Western chauvinism thing that that you hear from white men who perpetuate this idea that a part of Western chauvinism, their their whole shtick is that they're manly men and they do manly men things like eat lots of meat. And five years from now, I would like to hear what their proctologists have to say. I don't need to see the pictures, but I'm just really curious how all that's going to come out in the end. I'm so sorry about that pun, but I just couldn't help myself with that. But I mean, to 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 Ingrid's, um, you know, uh, a point, I, I really I, I'm, I'm glad to do it because I'm glad that Julian Assange did what he did with WikiLeaks. Right. I mean, as 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 a journalist, just just the ability to be able to speak the truth. And I'm feeling a little bit of the heat. We are here on Sputnik that that we get that the state can do. You know, we're 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 on a network that the Department of Justice has tried to shut down ever since the 2016 elections because of this Russian misinformation garbage that has come out of the Democratic Party and Hillary Clinton's campaign in particular. But the 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 efforts to silence us redoubled since February, you know, and here we are on this network, Sean, two two African folk 
who are anti-imperialist, anti-war folk who talk about movement, work, movement, people, movement, struggle. And the people who have the most heat for us seem to be people who never listen to our show. You make this point all the time. And they're the people who are always telling us, well, I would listen to you if you weren't on that network for the Russians. (laughs) But they never listen to our show to hear us tell the truth about what is going on in this system that people like us are fighting against. So that's, I think, why I I have to, whenever I'm asked, I, I still kind of operate under Abdushahid Lukman's instructions when we started Lukman Nation. And he said, I don't care who calls. I don't care how many times they call. If they call you and ask you to speak, the answer is always yes. Unless there was a caveat, unless it's Fox News and some crazy right wing people, then <laughs> then we'll talk about it. But but otherwise, if people call call and ask you to speak, the answer is yes. So, you know, when I was when I was asked to speak at this rally on Human Rights Day for Julian Assange, I couldn't say no, because honestly, Julian Assange did not commit a crime by exposing the crimes that this government has committed against humanity and is now himself being threatened with his life by the very system that he exposed. So I'm, I'm honored to be able to speak on his behalf. And I hope, you know, we're able to do something to move him closer to freedom. Yeah. And, you know, not to belabor the point about Jordan Peterson, but like he, he just looks bad. He does. And I mean, it's like it's the meat. I'm, that's what I'm saying. Like, like, I don't I don't I don't know. Like, I, I guess I just don't I don't understand the appeal on like the most base level. I mean, maybe it's like a sunk cost thing to where like if you roll with him this long, maybe you'll buy the all meat diet, too. But it's like like not only does he look bad, he just he doesn't seem like he's doing well, like emotionally. Like you watch these interviews with him and like the people ask him a question. He almost like breaks down in tears like the guy is just not okay. And as I recall, he first gained prominence because as a professor, he like like refused to like use people's pronouns or something. And and he tried to make it like a thing about like academic freedom or freedom of speech or something like his school sent out something about respecting pronouns. I mean, just absurd. I mean, at least with someone like Kevin Samuels, this is someone who presents very well. He wears a suit, always has a nice haircut, uh, sits in a nice looking office or studio type thing. I think he exfoliated. You you know what I'm saying? He looks like he's like doing well on a personal level. I think he understood that for him to reach the people he wanted to reach, he wanted to to look a certain way. Right. But like with Peterson, I I just don't really get the uh, uh, appeal at all. Um, But switching gears, Jackie, I also oh, also wanted to raise this issue in Germany where German officials have arrested 22 people they suspect of trying to overthrow the government, uh, 22 suspects and three suspected supporters of this coup plot, which reportedly includes uh, a former far-right member of the Bundestag, which is uh, the German parliament, and reportedly someone who I understand to be a prince. They're like a descendant of German royalty. It's uh, pretty wild. So there was an estimated 50 people who were suspected to be a part of this group called Reich Citizens that uh, was uh, founded sometime around November 2021. 
Um, according to a statement, says, quote, the accused are united by a deep rejection of state institutions in the free democratic basis order of the Federal Republic of Germany, which over time has led to their decision to participate in their violent elimination and to engage in concrete preparatory actions for this purpose. The members of the group follow a conglomerate of conspiracy myths consisting of narratives of the so-called Reichsburger as well as QAnon ideology. And so, yeah, and I think uh, going back to our conversation about um, uh, far-right violence on the rise, Jackie, it's that's not just the case in the U.S. It's true all over the globe, and it's been happening uh, for some time. But like I say, I, I feel like the uh, the the escalation and tactics, I think, is bringing more attention to it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And and when I read this story, Sean, I actually thought back to when I went to Venezuela uh, earlier this year um, and I, I was actually coming back and I was coming through uh, customs um, at I can't remember what whatever the layover airport was from Venezuela to the U.S. And I. And I, I looked over and there was a group of uh, uh, folks. So I was still in um, uh, Venezuela, I think. Uh, so I look over. There's a group of uh, non-Venezuelan people. They were white. Um, and, and I knew that because they were speaking very American. <laughs> right. Um, and there was a it was a couple of families. It was, you know, moms, dads, bunch of kids and. And they all, all the kids, the boys particularly, had on T-shirts that had a tree with the word raices underneath. So mm-hmm. the teeny little bit of Spanish, you know, I know I figured out that's roots. Yeah. But they, the thing other than the T-shirts that made them appear to be a part of a group and a very specific group. And the reason I paid attention to them was they all had on some type of military gear. Mm-hmm. It was either flak jackets or the 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 desert issue combat boots, you know, the the buoy hats, uh, some type of military gear. And, and the parents were dragging along some other type of military gear. And I'm, and I'm sitting there and I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, what is wrong with this picture? <laughs> we are in Venezuela and these people are clearly American. And they are also coming from Venezuela. But they're all wearing some type of military gear. What in the world could they be doing regarding military activities in Venezuela or somewhere close to Venezuela? And I I remembered back to the conversation I had with some members of the Venezuelan delegation who were telling us about the, the the problems they were having with Colombian military and paramilitary units on the border with Venezuela mm-hmm. and how they were training people. The Colombians were because Ivan Duque was still Duque, yeah, yeah. right. He was still the president of Colombia. And, and it just all clicked to me. And I'm like, oh, my God, I think I'm seeing a part of this. This right wing, violent kind of training apparatus. And it's like it's it's you're that close to it, Sean, without realizing, I think, how close to it you really are. You know what I mean? So it's like this this these kinds of networks of of right wing uh, uh, individuals, organizations, 
I, it, it's not something that's far away that's that, you know, oh, my God, we can't we can't envision what this looks like and how they're doing this. This is something that is way far over there. If if a chick from Southeast D.C. can literally put her eyes on on it when she goes to Venezuela one time, I, I, I just don't think it's that much of a coincidence that I can dismiss it and not come to the conclusion that it is a much bigger global problem than we want to admit. Mm-hmm. Because if we look at what just happened in Peru and Argentina, how do you not connect that with what we were talking about before the break? The, the growing, a very well-organized right wing in this country, how, how are they not connected to the very same forces I mean, these group, these folks in 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 Germany, they latched on to QAnon mm-hmm. ideology. I, I mean, come on, I I really would like for folks on the left, you know, not not the actual anti-imperialists who right. get this. This this is not for y'all. This is for everybody else who calls themselves just general leftists, but do not understand that we are fighting against a global right wing movement that is absolutely coalescing at this moment to fight against the rising progressivism and leftism in the global South and the rest of the world. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And uh, like beyond the people who are sort of directly involved uh, with these groups, I think we also, and I think you sort of uh, alluded to this, we also got to consider their, uh, their networks and connections and things like that, that sort of help facilitate that as well. But uh, switching gears a little bit, I wanted to talk about this issue of uh, Kirsten Sinema, a senator from Arizona, announcing her departure from uh, the Democratic Party, uh, uh, saying in an interview with Jake Tapper on CNN, quote, I've registered as an Arizona independent. I know some people might be a little bit surprised by this. We're not. But actually, I think it makes a lot of sense. I agree. I've never fit neatly into any party box. I've never really tried. I don't want to. Removing myself from the partisan structure, not only is it true to who I am and how I operate, I also think it'll provide a place of belonging for many folks across the state and the country who are tired of the partisanship. And uh, she recently wrote an op-ed in the Arizona Republic uh, sort of explaining her decision, saying that, you know, the way she operates in the Senate, quote, has upset partisans in both parties. And politicians are more focused on denying the opposition party of victory than they are in improving Americans' lives. The people who lose are everyday Americans. That's why I have joined the growing number of Arizona or Arizonans who reject party politics by declaring my independence from the broken partisan system in Washington. Now, when she talks about um, people in power focusing more on sniping at each other than improving the lives of Americans, that's actually true. But when she talks about everyday Americans losing, well, who does she think lost from her fighting the Build Back Better bill? Like, th- this is like, like, she is so obnoxious. First of all, her doing this isn't going to cause any, anything of note uh, uh, in terms of, like, the relationship of forces, if you will, in terms of U.S. mainstream politics. It's just not. This is, this is a personal branding thing for her. And see, what makes her so annoying to me is that 
you know, she she has this image of, oh, I'm the quirky one. I've got the funky glasses and I wear bright colors and I'm not, you know, I don't look like another one of these uh, stuffed suits. And that somehow was supposed to provide cover for the fact that she's a straight up right winger. I mean, she, her and Manchin uh, wore this label of moderate, but that, that's just right wing. You know what I mean? And and she's always been coddled by the Democratic Party establishment. You're talking about someone, Kirsten Cinema, who has received millions of dollars in Wall Street donations. She was first elected to the House in 2012, then the Senate in 2018. And, you know, taking more and more contributions from uh, these corporate PACs and Wall Street, like I'm saying, which, of course, like the rest of them, uh, indelibly colors how she votes in uh, uh, Congress. And she's actually one of the top recipients of Wall Street contributions in Congress. You know, this year alone, Kirsten Cinema received over $1 million from hedge fund and private equity uh, uh, forces along with venture capitalists. And we've seen that she's opposed a minimum wage increases, block bills to increase uh, taxes on corporations. And in the period from 2018 to 2022, uh, she received $95,000 plus combined from employees at private equity firms like Apollo Global Management, the Carlisle Group, and the Kohlberg uh, Kravis Roberts Organization. And just during a two-week period in September, she collected $47,000 from executives um, at the Welsh, Carson, Anderson, and Stowe private equity firms. Now, in the fall of 2021, she opposed legislation that would have reduced Trump's tax cuts on the wealthiest 1% of individual earners and on uh, corporations, effectively blocking some of the key domestic policy goals of her own party. And just earlier this year, she opposed a 15% minimum tax rate on corporations who more often than not pay no federal tax at all. Also fought uh, to protect the special uh, uh, status given to people who uh, uh, make you know money through these high-end Wall Street investments. Now, in August, she blocked a provision that would have closed the loophole in tax law, allowing for law firm partners, private equity executives and hedge fund managers to pay much lower taxes. And uh, this was a part of a spending bill. And in order to get cinema's vote, uh, the Democrats dropped the provision. They dropped it just to get her vote. This is what I mean by her being coddled by the Democrats. Now, she's actually. Speaking of her fundraising, she's actually saw some of her highest fundraising quarter uh, here recently. So just since July, 41 percent of Kirsten Sinema's donation came from uh, wealthy donors who actually benefit from uh, the killing of that tax loophole provision. Now, this includes uh, healthcare executives, Goldman Sachs and others. Now, in her own home state of Arizona, polling shows that she's losing support from her Democratic base. And so it just seems to me that this is all just a big cynical move to kind of shift her branding a little bit. And I and also I think her being an independent as opposed to uh, joining the Republicans, because he joining the Republicans, I think, would be bad for her, you know, quirky, quote unquote, maverick image. You know what I mean? But if she, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, remains an independent, she can basically go ahead and be the right winger she always was just with, you know, a kind of a, a different coat. You know what I mean? And, you know, it's kind of similar to 
um, Tulsi Gabbard leaving the Democrats, although she went to uh, uh, the Republicans. I mean, it's the same sort of deal. It's just, you know, they're sort of feeling which ways the winds are blowing, I'm sure, considering their own sort of ambitions and uh, uh, moving accordingly. But like I say, I don't think this is surprising to anyone. I don't think this necessarily uh, uh, moves the needle. But for her to act like she's basically too cool for either of uh, the either of the two ruling class parties, I think is just absurd. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. This is a for her a politically uh, cynical move, but I, and I think it was more cynical uh, financially than it was politically, right? Because I I think that had she gone straight to the GOP, well, that that would have tanked her immediately. Because because right now, can can we be honest? Right now, the GOP is a little bit radioactive, just a little bit, and, and I mean, it could go either way. <laughs> And nobody really knows right now whether because there's a very real possibility of Donald Trump being the 20 to uh, the nominee for uh, uh, the presidential um, uh, presidential race. And I don't think cinema wants to be in the GOP and have to support publicly Donald Trump. That see, that's the thing. But but I think for her staying out of the Democratic Party. She gets to openly support uh, uh, all of the, the the financial interests that she's gotten all of this money from without having to pretend like she actually cares about people's issues. You're right. So she can just yeah. sit there and, and really just not have a take at all on on anything the people actually need or pushing back on any of the legislation that the Democrats float that really cuts off people's at the need knees. She didn't have to say anything about that anymore. She didn't have to answer to her Democratic voters, supporters. Doesn't matter. She's an independent. She can keep getting her corporate money, not worry about, you know, being, you know, having the specter of Donald Trump looking over her as a member of the GOP. Um, although I, I don't know how long that's going to work for her uh, when it comes to getting her reelected to that position, because while she isn't beholden to anyone, she also doesn't have a track record that shows that she's given the people of Arizona right. anything for her time in uh, in office up to this point. So I don't know, financially cynical for her, but may not translate to her political longevity either. Yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll definitely uh, have to see. And I just want to say uh, all, all of those uh, notes that you all just heard me sort of discussing in terms of uh, uh, Kirsten Cinema's history. I was actually reading it from a thread that was posted on uh, Twitter uh, by the Party for Socialism and Liberation. Very uh, informative. And I encourage people to sort of check it out and get deeper into it themselves because it's just important to lay out the fact that despite her image, she's basically always been an enemy of the working class. So now she's just going to be an enemy of the working class outside of the Democrats. Uh, shout out to... <laughs> Shout out to the by any means necessary chat. Many now says Kirsten Cinema dresses like an extra from Clarissa explains it all. <laughs> wow, dog. Like, not only is that spot on, not only is that like a good joke, but what a great reference. I, I have not thought about that show in years. I was definitely a kid watching uh, uh, Clarissa explains it all. But you see, Jackie, this issue with cinema, sort of taking a step back and looking at it, to me, it just feels like another piece of political theater. That 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 is just so much a part of how uh, uh, bourgeois ruling class politics operate and manifest here in the United States. I mean, you know, because cinema. I mean, she did like a whole rollout of this thing. She did an exclusive interview with Jake Tapper, 
wrote an op-ed about it, putting out statements for like, for, you know, in, in a thing that like no one really cares. But it, it's just one more thing to like fill up airtime and, you know, fill up inches in these columns and things like that. Meanwhile, the same uh, 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 working class whose interests Kirsten Cinema has been undermining her entire career continue to suffer and their conditions um, uh, uh, continue to uh, uh, worsen. You know what I mean? And so that that I think is for me kind of the 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 chief uh, uh, consequence of all of this. It's like while they're playing games, while they're making they're just putting on these big productions, cinema and Gabbard putting on these big productions about how they're leaving and all these sorts of things. And uh, uh, the, the Trump impeachment trials and just all all of this stuff that does not bust a grape, does not move a needle does not impact people's everyday conditions in any way. And so it's like the ruling class will knock itself out to do everything, anything and everything to keep from actually addressing our concerns. And see, this is what we have to be a, a cognizant of, particularly as we you know, continue to go through these election cycles and people will continue to to make it to make it seem as though you will literally fall over dead if, if you don't go to uh, the ballot box and that's the only thing that matters. I mean, as we continue to, to, to see these kinds of things, I mean, all of that, it just it just I mean, it was always lame, but it sounds even more lame the more that we continue to see how these contradictions are exposed. And like I always say, nothing wrong with voting. I vote myself. But see, if you notice the uh, uh, the, the 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 whole concept of voting and the way that it plays out, it's used as a bludgeon against poor working and oppressed people that, you know, you, you, you cannot complain or make any demands of these people. You just have to go vote for them because we have to make sure that the other guy doesn't get it because if the other guy gets it, well, then we're really doomed. And see, the funny thing with the Democrats is if you notice when they're in power, all they talk about is what they can't do. Right. Mm -hmm. Even when, even when they control the white house, uh, both houses of uh, Congress, the Senate and the House, no matter how much leverage they actually have, they always want to talk about how they can't do something. But yet when a Republican's in power, somehow they're the most powerful person on Earth right. when they're in the Like, how does that work? If, 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 if this position is so powerful, then how come you don't use it to do something good? <laughs> yep. That, and, but you know what, Sean? This is something that I noticed the Democrats do. At the same time, they're complaining about what they can't do. They, they always preface it with, well, we tried to work with our colleagues across the aisle who, you know, are, are generally decent people. This is invariably this is the kind of script they use. You know, I tried to we tried to work with our colleagues across the aisle who who we believe are generally decent people. They're just a little misguided on this one little issue and the misguiding. The, the 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 misguided thinking is that they don't want to give poor people a, a child tax credit. That That's not being misguided on one little issue. That's right. not caring if poor people and their children die. So so people who believe that really are not decent people at their core. But you will never hear Democrats say that they will never say about members of the Republican Party who block every effort, no matter how weak need and mealy mouthed and piecemeal the Democrats do try to stitch together when they when they try to act like they're trying to maybe do something decent for folks. 
You no, know, it's it's never. You know what? We tried to talk about this legislation with the Democrats, well, with the Republicans. But you know what? They just hate human beings. <laughs> they just hate humanity. And they honestly don't care if poor people die. They don't care if working people don't have sick days. They don't care if, if women, you know, if mothers don't have paid maternity leave, if, if fathers don't have paid. Maternity. They will never speak to the inherent lack of humanity that exists in the opposite party, they always talk about we tried to work bipartisanly with our colleagues across the aisle and we just couldn't come to an agreement. Well, when the when the Republicans are in, uh, in power, it, at, at, to your point, they never talk about working across Ever. the aisle. Ever. The they never they will and they will get on television and call Democrats all kinds of names. Remember when Barack Obama was elected? And before he even had his first official day in office, and this is not an endorsement for Obama, just an example. What was Lindsey Graham's first press conference when Obama was elected? What's that? Lindsey Graham's first press conference was to announce Mm -hmm. that we are not going to support anything that man does. Right. Everything we are going to block his agenda. We don't care what it is. We're going to block it. That's it. Have a great day. (laughs) So, I mean, there is a a difference of the use of power that Republicans exhibit as opposed to when Democrats have power. And I think this is very important, Sean, because it shows that if the Democrats are the party that's better than the Republicans, better Mm -hmm. for human rights and all that kind of stuff, how is it that they misuse power so badly? Right. I don't I don't get this. But, you know, it's 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 not a misuse of power. Mm. They're they're using their power to protect the interest of capital. That is literally why they're in place. And this is also why all of this political theater is necessary. And this is what we have to understand. And uh, uh, we we got to be clear on the fact that we're not talking about an issue of uh, intelligence or understanding or, or all those sorts of things. It's not an issue that they just, quote unquote, don't get it. These people are very clear on what they're in place to do, but they have to put on a show to you and I to make it look like they're maybe trying to do something or gesturing or have some kind of rhetoric that makes it seem like they want to do something that's going to help us. But ah, don't you know, we just can't do it this time for X, Y, Z reasons. And I think that's evidence in the fact that, you know, the Democrats are always willing to reach across the aisle to open reactionaries. They 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 have an open arm policy with the the this far right element in mainstream politics, but cannot even tolerate the slightest bit of uh, uh, resistance to their left. And so as such, we cannot rely on either of these mainstream parties. You and I have to build a movement for ourselves and for our class to change this country completely. But we're going to leave it there for today and this week here on By Enemies Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be back next week with an all-new slate of episodes. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By any means necessary.